All right. <laughs> Welcome to the After Church. We've uh, had a couple of technical difficulties tonight. All good. Um, so we are continuing along in our series entitled, Why Is This Even In Here? And we're looking at passages in the Bible that are weird, that are strange, that are difficult to understand. Uh, passages that make us scratch our heads and wonder why, out of all the things that God could have put in the Bible, why this? Things that to our modern ears sound like they make zero sense whatsoever. And hopefully what you've been finding as we've been going along in this series is that oftentimes it is in these obscure passages that we find some of the most beautiful nuggets of truth. That even though it doesn't initially make sense when we read it, when we dig deep into every single passage, we find that there is beauty and eternal truth that applies today. I'm also hoping that as a result of this series, you gain a better appreciation not only of the passages that we're studying, but all of the Bible. That uh, as a result of this study, you won't ever come across a passage and immediately think to yourself, well, that no longer applies. Hopefully this will inspire you to continue to take a deeper look everywhere that you find yourself. So uh, today we are continuing along, and you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to our passage for today, which is in the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 15. Genesis 15. Um, while you're turning there, uh, raise your hand if you have ever seen the 1995 romantic comedy, While You Were Sleeping. Okay, a few, a couple of you, all right? Not very many, all right? Well, it's a 95... And uh, I know I shouldn't go there, but there are a number of people in the room who are not alive at that time. So it doesn't surprise me that many of you have not seen it. But uh, this movie stars Sandra Bullock um, in an incredibly unlikely, uh, happens in Hollywood only type of a plot. In this movie, Sandra Bullock plays a character named Lucy. And Lucy works as a lonely teller at a train station in Chicago. Uh, We learn in the movie that she is an orphan, she has very few friends, and she lives with a cat. And as we all know, you cannot trust people whose only friend is a cat. Am I right? I tend to not trust people who own cats, period. But if your only friend is a cat, that is not a good sign. Well, Lucy has a secret crush on a businessman named Peter who uh, comes through her uh, teller booth every day on his way to work. Um, Peter, of course, doesn't know that Lucy even exists. But from afar, she has this admiration for this guy, Peter. Uh, And then one day, um, Peter is mugged in the train station, and the muggers push him onto the tracks. And Lucy jumps into action. She jumps on the tracks, saves his life by pulling him away from the oncoming train. However, uh, because of the fall onto the tracks, Peter is hurt enough to fall into what movie critic Roger Ebert calls a movie coma. He defines a movie coma as follows, a medical condition that requires him to remain unconscious for precisely as long as is convenient for the plot. That is a movie coma. While Peter is unconscious, the plot 
thickens. A nurse overhears Lucy saying to herself, I was going to marry him. Now, she, of course, meant this comment offhand and wistfully and to no one in particular. But this nosy nurse interpreted as, this is his fiance, And she tells Peter's entire family as much, that Lucy is Peter's fiance. Now, Lucy is stuck. She's stuck in this misunderstanding. Um, Peter's family, though, welcomes her in. They shower her with love and affection. Every single one of them adopts her as one of their own. And to make matters worse, Peter's grandmother is in poor health, and she couldn't possibly hear the truth without it pushing her over the edge. So Lucy can't tell the truth, right? She has to remain in the lie. Meanwhile, Peter's brother Jack keeps coming around. And Jack keeps getting cuter and cuter every time he shows up. And so, before long, Lucy and Jack catch feelings. But that can't happen. Because Lucy is engaged to Peter, quote unquote. But then Peter wakes up. And there's a problem, because Peter doesn't know Lucy. But by this point, the whole family loves her. And so all of them are like, well, Peter, you must have amnesia. We're, we're here with your fiance, and she loves you. Uh, you should propose again. Somehow, they convince Peter to do so. He proposes again, quote unquote, and conflicted in the lie, stuck in what to do, uh, Lucy agrees to marry Peter, even though she is in love with Jack. That is until their wedding day. Uh, In the middle of their wedding, Lucy says, I object. She decides then that she cannot live a lie, and she professes her love for Jack, while the whole crowd watches in stunned astonishment. Um, Oh, and since this is a movie, uh, it's at this point that Peter's real fiancé finally shows up. And she demands that the wedding be put to a stop. And did I mention that somehow in this movie, his fiance is already married to someone else? It's crazy. Uh, Now, don't worry. Lucy does end up with Jack. Sorry for the spoiler for all of you that haven't seen it. They do end up together in the end. Uh, He comes and proposes to her at her teller booth with the whole family cheering her on. And as the credits roll at the end of this movie, Lucy is narrating. She's telling the end of the story. And the final line in the movie goes like this. Peter asked me once when I fell in love with Jack. And I told him it was while you were sleeping. Cheesy, right? My eyes cannot possibly roll hard enough in a moment like that. I want to throw my popcorn at the screen and boo! Right. It's incredibly unrealistic, right? And, and it's way too cheesy That's, that a person could experience something like that in real life. I mean, I mean really. A person is given a future, a, a, a true love, a covenant a family, all while someone is asleep. 
That would never happen in real life. Or would it? Could it have happened in the Bible? Not once, not twice, but three times. Let's find out, shall we? Now, as always, this comes with the disclaimer that this is a strange, weird passage. Um, But this passage will not be entirely unfamiliar to those of you who have heard my preaching for a long time, because I've referenced this passage a number of times. It is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, and hopefully you'll soon see why. Uh, It's weird, it's gory, it's violent, um, and it is far removed from our modern context. Uh, But it is filled with incredible beauty. And it reveals so many of the amazing things about the love story that God fashioned while you were sleeping. So, Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. God's covenant with Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Here's where it gets weird. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, Dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, and the Paradites, and the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, and the Parasites, and the Mennonites, and the Megabites, and the traffic lights. 
So, before we dive into exactly what is going on here, let's begin where we have begun every single week uh, during this series, with our quiz. There are four essential principles of biblical interpretation that we apply not only to this passage, but also to every other passage. So, quiz time. What are those four essential biblical interpretation devices? Yes, sir. Scripture interprets Scripture. For those of you that are not here and watching online, that's my son. boy. Scripture interprets Scripture. Who else? Genre matters. What else? Yes. There is a difference between description and prescription. One more. The Bible must be read as an ancient document. Yes. So briefly breaking each one of these down. Number one, the Bible must be read as an ancient document. We cannot look at things written thousands of years ago as if they were written today. What that means is we have to understand every single passage through the lens of the original author to the original audience. And once we know what it meant originally, we can then extrapolate from that the eternal truths that are relevant to us today. We do not look at the Bible as only an ancient document, meaning that it was only for ancient people and in an ancient time. God, in his word, has presented himself, revealing himself on every single page. And so he is unchanging. His word is living and active. But in order to understand it best, we first have to get to the root of what the original author was writing to the original audience. Next, we note the the difference between description and and prescription, meaning that there are times where the Bible describes something, saying, this happened. Other times, it prescribes something, which means, now you go and do it. Those are not always the same. And oftentimes, we have people that look at the Bible and say, there's some awful stuff here. How can you defend this? And sometimes the answer to that question is, it is recording the reality of something awful. Not saying that it is a good thing that we ought to emulate. Now, there are times where the Bible describes something and then says, go ye do likewise. But that's not always the case. And so we have to note the difference between when the Bible is recording something And when the Bible is recommending something. Next, we know that genre matters. Literary genre. Represented in the Bible are a wide range of literary genres. Among them being narrative, poetry, law, personal letters. And so we have to read each of those as the literary genre demands. We cannot, of course, read poetry the same way that we read narrative. Poetry often features hyperbole and very flowery language, exaggeration that's on purpose meant to make a point. Not the same as a narrative passage that says, this is exactly what happened in exactly this way. And then finally, scripture interprets scripture. When we come to a place that we're trying to understand, we have to place it in the context of its immediate chapter and and book, but also in the context of the Bible as a whole. 
And when we put these four principles together, hopefully we can get a much better understanding everywhere we go. So let's begin to put those principles to use and first set some context for the passage that we read today in Genesis chapter 15. There's a few things that you need to know about our main character, Abraham, or as he is uh, in this passage, Abram, before God changes his name from Abram to Abraham. And uh, just to clear up any confusion, there may be times in the sermon where I say Abram, other times where I say Abraham, same dude. Um, So, Abraham's story spans 14 long chapters in the book of Genesis. Other than Moses, there is no Old Testament character that is mentioned more than Abraham in the New Testament. He is referred to over 300 times in the course of those 27 books. Abraham is regarded as the father of the Hebrew faith, and all believers, of course, are referred to as his children, right? We all know the song, don't we? Father Abraham had many sons. That was weak, but thank you. Thank you for humoring me. Many sons had Father Abraham. So you could spend months going through Abraham's life. Um, But here's some background information. Abraham was a descendant of Shem. Shem is one of the sons of Noah. Um, And a few weeks ago, we went over the story of Nimrod in the, the chapter about the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Um, And so in that story, what we read is that Nimrod was trying to make a name for himself because there was a curse uh, handed down earlier that said that his line would serve the great name. And so Shem's line was given the blessing to produce the great name. That great name, of course, is Jesus. Some of Abraham's family, including Abraham's own father, however, were worshipers of pagan idols. But did you know that Noah and Shem were still alive when Abraham was born? This is one of the reasons why we look at genealogies in Scripture as being so important, because they give us a timeline uh, for what is happening when. And these genealogies present a timeline that shows us that Adam, the first man, lived until just before Noah. And Noah was still alive at the time of Abraham. So what that means is that all that there is to be known about God, all that God has revealed himself to man, is passed down straight from the mouth of the first man, Adam. There is a seamless passage of Revelation at this point. It is never a point where hundreds and hundreds of years have gone by and things are passed down and changed and, and, you know, myth gets put into the record. Seamless passage of Revelation. So Abraham knows firsthand about Yahweh. So God appears to Abraham and he commands him to leave for a new land. And there he will make his name great, which again is a throwback to our earlier story, great name. He promises him that he is going to make his descendants more than he could possibly ever count. But at the time of Abraham's calling, he is 75 years old and childless. His wife is old too. 
both of them, because of that, would have been regarded in their culture as being cursed by God. To be childless was one of the worst things you could possibly be. So what we learn in our story in Genesis 15 verse 2 is that at this point, his heir is one of his servants, a guy named Eliezer of Damascus. But uh, Abraham, uh, he, he obeys God's call to leave Ur of the Chaldeans, and he arrives in Canaan. And here, God promises him all of this land. And there, Abraham builds an altar at a place called Bethel. And we're standing on that altar right now at Bethel. I'm just kidding. Bethel. After moving uh, throughout this region, Abraham becomes very rich. Uh, at one point, he rescues his neighbor, uh, I'm sorry, his nephew from uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. He is blessed by the priest Melchizedek. And then we come to our text for today, God's covenant with Abram. So, what on earth is going on here? And what is God revealing about himself in this passage? How is God using Genesis 15 to cause us to look forward to the Messiah? And what does that mean for us? So let's take a closer look. In verses 1 through 8, God reiterates a promise that he has already made to Abram. There in verse 1, he says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. This is a call back to a promise that he's already made. Abram then responds by saying, Okay, but you haven't kept your promise. And right now I don't have an heir. And this guy that lives in my house is my heir. And God reiterates, No, I am going to give you lots and lots of children. If we were to go back just a couple of chapters in, in Genesis 13, beginning in verse 14, we read about God making that promise. Then the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So, what we have here, essentially, is Mufasa sitting down with Simba on the top of Pride Rock, looking out on the land and saying, Everywhere the light touches will be yours. That is what God gives to Abram. So here in verses 1 through 8, God is reiterating this promise. But like any of us would be in that situation, Abraham says to God, all right, how will I know that you're going to keep your promise? So in verse 9, God says, I'll show you. Abraham asks the question in verse 8, O Lord God, how am I to know? That everything you've promised is going to come to pass. And this is God's way of saying, I'll show you. Bring me a heifer three years old, a male goat three years old, a ram three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Okay? So Abraham brings these animals. Verse 10. He cut them in half. 
laid each half over against the other, except for the birds. He didn't cut those in half. And then, of course, all the birds of prey show up. All the buzzards start flying around and maybe even hyenas. And he drove them away. Uh, What is happening here? Why does God have him bring these animals and then have him cut them in half and lay these pieces out? We read this and we go, say what? But ancient readers would have known exactly what was going on. They would have heard this and they would have said immediately, ah, he is setting up the covenant cutting ceremony. So what exactly is this strange covenant cutting ceremony? This uh, ceremony was particularly popular in, uh, in the Chaldees. And the way that it would work is parties would take animals and they would cut them in half. And then they would take the animal halves and they would set them a few feet apart and they would create a path. The blood from these animals would pool in the middle. And then the two parties would walk a blood path to each other. They would get their feet wet in the blood, walk through the blood, meet each other in the middle, shake hands and say, may it be unto me as unto these animals if I do not uphold my end of the covenant. This is sort of the precursor to until death do us part, but way stronger Because instead of till death do us part, it's more like put me to death if I ever try to part. Now in these days, as you know, marriages were arranged. And so this ceremony was used by the father of the bride and the father of the groom. The two fathers would walk a blood path to each other, making the covenant on behalf of their children, saying, if my son doesn't honor your daughter, you cut us both in half. And if that son was caught cheating, then dad and son would be found chopped up at the bottom of a well. You got to wonder how different the divorce rate would be today if this is still how we did marriage, right? But this was a very popular uh, ceremony. My son right now is looking at me like, oh my God. What is happening? Don't worry, son. We're not going to use this ritual with you, okay? This is how two parties would enter a covenant. And there's a difference between a covenant and a contract, okay? A contract can always be renegotiated. If at any point the two parties decide, this is no longer working for me, what you're giving me or what I'm giving you, let's change this, okay? Think about what you have with your cell phone provider. That's a contract. It's two years But at any point, you can have it bought out. Or you can call and and care in and get something different. But a contract and a covenant are very different. A A covenant cannot be changed. A covenant is permanent. A covenant here is on the basis of death. And so God cuts the covenant with Abram using the ritual of the day. This is a binding, unchanging vow. Death unto me if I fail to keep my promises. But there's something very strange and different about this particular covenant cutting. 
Something about this covenant cutting that, again, the original readers would have been like, wait a second, what happened? Because there's something about this that was unlike any other covenant cutting ceremony before. This leads us to point number one. God often does his best work while we're asleep and out of the way. God often does his best work while we're asleep and out of the way. Verse 12 tells us that after Abram sets this thing up, after he cuts the animals, after he sets the pieces, everything's ready, the blood is pooling, birds of prey are circling, and Abram's shooing them away because Abram knows what's about to happen. Abram knows exactly what he's set up. Abram wants to be ready to walk the blood path. He's ready. He's standing. He's waiting for God to show up. Okay, God, you had me set up the ceremony. When are we going to do this? But then look at verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now, when you look at the wording, especially in the original language, what we find is that this was not a case of Abram setting everything up. Then while he's waiting, he's kind of getting bored and he dozes off. That's not what happens. Abraham doesn't decide, I'm going to take a nap. God's taking too long. When he shows up, he'll wake me up. That's not what it means. It says that a deep sleep fell on him. It's worded better that it was placed on him. A, be, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. This is God putting Abram to sleep on purpose. So, unlike a typical covenant-cutting ceremony, Abram doesn't ever walk this blood path. God walks it by himself. Abram becomes a bystander. And while Abram is sleeping, that is when God walks the blood path to himself by himself. He appears as fire and smoke. We read this in verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. This is God, as he often does, appearing as fire or smoke. And so he shows up as fire and smoke, and he walks that blood path by himself to himself. So the question then becomes, why did God do this? Why did God have Abram set up this ceremony and then take Abram and put him on the sidelines? There's a couple of reasons. The first is that he knew that Abram and every single one of his descendants would fail. He knew that Abram could not keep that promise. He knew that Abram could not meet him as an equal. They could not walk this covenant blood path as equals. Abram couldn't enter into an agreement with God as a peer, able to uphold the promises in the same way that God is able to uphold the promises. 
God could make these kind of promises and keep them. Abraham could not. And so God kept Abram from making a promise that he couldn't keep in the first place. God stood in his place and covenanted with himself on Abram's behalf. He knew that every single one of his descendants would fall and fail and sin. He knew that they would be unfaithful. He knew that they would forsake him. He knew that they would choose other gods instead of him. So, by walking that blood path in Abram's place to himself, God was saying to Abram, I know that your descendants will sin and fail. But when you fail, death unto me. You see, the typical covenant-cutting ceremony was two parties saying, if I fail, put me to death. But this ceremony, God says, I know you're going to fail, and when you do, I will be put to death instead. God, in this moment, is promising to Father Abraham and his many sons that one day his own son will be put to death for their sin. So often in our lives, we approach God as if we are equals. So many times we come into his presence acting like we're, we're peers, like we're on the same level. We often forget who we were when he saved us. We forget also how sinful we still are today. We act like we're all holy and high and mighty and sometimes God has to give us a very ugly look in the mirror and remind us, remember who you're talking to, son. That's what the last few weeks have been like for me in my own life. And some of you know the the background to that. God, over the last few weeks, has given me a very sobering look into my own pharisaical heart. See, when I look through the pages of Scripture, the guy that I identify most with is the Apostle Paul. In fact, I'm named after the Apostle Paul. My middle name is Paul. Paul had an upbringing that bred within him a deep-seated sense of self-righteousness, a better-than-others-ness. Paul looked down his nose at the sins of others, ranking people. And always placing himself at the top of that pile. He and the other Pharisees, they were the righteous ones. They were the good guys. They were the ones who were good before the Lord. And Paul would not have said that he was sinless. But Paul would have said, yes, I'm sinful, but not like them. Yeah, I've done some things. I, I know that I need God but like the Pharisee that Jesus referenced praying in the temple, looking at a sinner saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like him. He's real bad. That's what Paul had in his own heart, self-righteousness. But then when God lit up the sky on the road to Damascus, he put scales on Paul's eyes. 
so that he couldn't look at anything or anyone else. He, in that moment, is plunged into darkness because he had to be put in a place where all he could do is look inwardly. And what did he say when he finally saw himself for what he really was? 1 Timothy 1, 15-16 Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for this very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul went from believing that he was the most righteous man in the world to realizing that he was just as desperate for the grace of God as the worst man who had ever lived. Similarly, over the last few weeks, I have been coming face to face with my own spiritual ugliness. And it has not been a pretty picture. But it has been a helpful reminder of how desperately I need Jesus every single moment of my life. The second reason that God put Abram to sleep is to show him that he doesn't need Abraham's help. Just like we tend to see ourselves as being less sinful than what we actually are, we also tend to see ourselves as more indispensable than we actually are. We operate, whether we're thinking about it consciously or not, we operate as if God needs our help. According to a survey done by the Barna Group, 81% of people believe the following statement, God helps those who help themselves. Similarly, and more anecdotally, I, I have seen many times on bumper stickers, on social media posts, on uh, even church signs, a very pithy yet equally erroneous phrase, if God is your co-pilot, switch seats. It's meant to be catchy. The drive behind these statements is that we have a role to play. And that's true. We can't just sit on our hands. We do have to act, but we also have to be uh, willing to let God be the one who directs us. So, let's rework those statements and make them biblically accurate. We would change the first one from God helps those who help themselves to God helps those who know they are helpless. God helps those who know they are helpless. And that second phrase, if God is your co-pilot, switch seats, we'd have to change it to this. If God is your co-pilot, what are you doing in the cockpit in the first place? You don't know anything about flying a plane, you fetus. Get back into economy. You're not even tall enough to sit in an exit row. My friends, I want you to hear me clearly. God wants you, but he doesn't need you. There is no lack that God has that we fill. There is nothing that he needs that we provide him. There is nothing that we bring him that he doesn't have infinitely more of in himself. So when we try to help God 
by saying, hey, listen, God, I've got it all figured out. Here's the plan. I need you to bless it. God, I've been looking around. I've been running my, uh, my, my diagnostics up here. This is the best thing for me. I know it. So I'm asking you to bless the plan. God, I'm sure, looks down from heaven, lovingly shakes his head, and says, how about you just follow my plan instead? We'll, we'll revisit this idea in just a few more moments, but we do not have the capacity to see anything beyond what is right in front of us. That's where we live. We can only see what what's right in front of us. God has the capacity to see a trillion moves ahead. He perfectly is weighing out variables that we don't even know exist. So, sometimes, in order for God to accomplish something amazing, he's got to put us to sleep. This, as I said earlier, has happened a number of times in the Bible. The first time he did it was in Genesis 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is a whole nother sermon for a whole nother time. But the synopsis there is, While Adam slept... At rest in God, God crafted Eve. The second time is in our passage in Genesis 15, where the covenant cutting ceremony is set up, and then God says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to put you to sleep so that I can do work. And so while Abram slept, God crafted an eternal covenant. The third time he did this was in the Gospels. Jesus carried the cross up a hill called Golgotha, put all the weight of sin from all of history upon his shoulders, and when he accomplished taking upon himself the full wrath of God against sin, at that point, to borrow Jesus' own biblical figure of speech, he went to sleep. And while he slept... God crafted eternal freedom. Commentator Henry Morris puts it like this. When Adam fell into a deep sleep, a bride was born. When Abraham fell into his deep sleep, a nation was born. But when Christ slept deeply in death, on the cross and in the tomb, death and hell were judged, and a new world was born. And so, our task is to rest in God. Rest in Him knowing that He is at work, accomplishing things that do not require my talents, that do not require my intellect, my abilities, my wisdom, or anything else. We must be at rest and let God do the work in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we just sit on our hands and do nothing. 
we are called to act and obey. But we do so in the mindset that we're not earning or accomplishing or creating. We're simply moving as directed. We allow God to point and then we go. Instead of us saying, I'm going to come up with it, you bless it. We sit back and go, Lord, you tell me where and when and I obey. I'm at rest in you knowing that it's not up to me to come up with the plan. The point is, God doesn't need your help. Point number two, your story doesn't belong to you. Your story, which you think is about you, doesn't belong to you. Let's read in our passage once more the animals that God commanded Abram to bring to this covenant-cutting ceremony. He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now, by show of hands, who believes that God arbitrarily chose random animals that had no significance to anything whatsoever and are just meaningless details that we should just skip over? Anyone? Exactly. You know why? Because that never happens in the Bible. Everything is always on purpose. These animals were chosen by God precisely because of what they point forward to. And each one of these animals, believe it or not, prefigures Jesus. We find later in Scripture... In the book of Leviticus, the details that God gives to the people concerning types of offerings to bring for sin. So when the people would go to the temple and give offerings to God, each one held particular significance. A heifer was sacrificed by the high priest to atone for the sin of the nation. And so when the high priest would stand up on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, this is what would be sacrificed for the people. This, of course, pointed to how Jesus would be the sacrifice for the world. A female goat would be brought to the temple by a common person to atone for their personal, willful sin. It was an offering of repentance. And this pointed forward to the way that Jesus' death covers every single sin that we repent of. A ram was offered for unintentional sin. It was a way of saying to God, there are sins that I have committed that I don't even realize that I've committed. I've done things that are wrong without even realizing that I'm doing something wrong. I've offended people in ways that I'm not even aware of. And so I am bringing this offering to cover even those sins that weren't intentional. And this pointed forward to the way that the sacrifice of Christ would cover every sin, including the ones that we're not even aware of. And then there's the turtle dove and the pigeon. We find in Leviticus 12 exactly what a turtle dove and a pigeon were meant for. A turtle dove and a pigeon were offerings of a woman 
who had just given birth to a child. So God commands that Abram bring these animals to him, each of them symbolizing the eternal covenant, the promise that he was making to Abraham and his descendants. God was saying, through my promise to you will come atonement for the world. Through my promise for, uh, to you will come the atonement for willful and unintentional sin. And it will come through the birth of a child. And when your descendants fail to keep this covenant, and they will, that child, my child, will be put to death in your place. That is what this is pointing forward to. One day, Jesus would walk the blood path, and he would take our place on the cross. And if we place our trust in him, if we repent of our sin, if we accept this, this sacrifice, then we are grafted in to the family of Abraham, and we're given an internal inheritance. Now, there is one other thing that I do not want you to miss, something that is very easy to miss in all of this, and that is that I am almost certain that Abraham did not know the significance of these animals at this time. When God commanded Abraham to bring these, I am almost certain that Abraham did not have all of those details that we just talked about. You know why? Because Leviticus wasn't handed down to Moses until hundreds of years later. God did not explain everything in detail until hundreds of years after this event. So to Abraham, just like it is to us, these animals may have seemed totally arbitrary, totally reasonless. Now, maybe it happened, and and it's not recorded, that God explains to him exactly why he chose these animals. But from what we have written in the pages of Scripture, we don't have him understanding this. But catch this. When this is written by Moses and read to the Israelites... When this is told to the people who have the knowledge that God has handed down in Leviticus, they would have known exactly what was going on. As these animals are being listed, the original audience of this passage would have leaned in, their ears perk up, their eyes wide, knowing exactly why each one of these animals was chosen. Moses would have read, bring me a heifer, and the people would have said, oh, oh, that's the same animal sacrificed by the high priest. Bring me a female goat. And they'd have said, that's, that's what I bring. That, that's the offering I always bring to the temple. Bring me a ram. Oh, I know, that's, that's for unintentional sin. Bring me a turtle dove and a pigeon. And they'd have gone, wait, what child? What child has been born? You see, Abraham might not have known exactly what was happening But future generations would see in his story the promise of the Messiah. God knew exactly what he was doing in this moment. He knew exactly what he was foreshadowing, even if Abraham did not. Here's what I want you to get from that. Many times, God is doing something in our lives, and we think it's for us. We think our story is about us, but it's not. It's for him. 
And so he will do things in us. He will use us in ways that we don't even know about. Because his story is so much bigger than my very short vapor of a time here on earth. And so there are many times, many times that we look at heaven with our fist raised and we say, God, why are you letting this happen to me? And God's response to us in that moment is, it's happening to you, but it's not for you. It's for God. It's for his story. Because his story is so much bigger than my story. It's for someone else. Someone else might see the incredible handiwork of God in my life. Someone in the future. Or someone right now that I don't even know is watching. So many times what's happening to me isn't even for me. Abraham in this moment had no idea that he was foreshadowing Jesus in such specific ways by bringing these animals. But God was using Abraham to show something incredible to everyone else in the future. We get the benefit of seeing things that Abraham never ever did. Oh, may it be true that God uses us for things that we don't even find out about until heaven. Oh, may it be true that as we obey him, those moments of obedience will send ripples into eternity. Ripples that we won't get to see until we get there. Ripples that our little brains could have never, ever dreamt up. Like I said earlier, God doesn't need my help. This is a perfect example of why. Because his wisdom is so far beyond my comprehension. I have barely the capacity to think about my own life. God uses Abraham to impact the lives of billions. And without Abraham even knowing it, using a seemingly arbitrary set of animals... He foreshadows the greatest single moment in human history that would come thousands of years later. Can you plan thousands of years in advance taking the lives of billions of people into consideration all at once? Of course not. So how about stop acting like God has no idea what he's doing in your life? Your life isn't for you your story isn't for you your life is for him you are a character in his story if a movie were being made about my life i wouldn't be the main character i would be playing a supporting role where christ is at the center of that film and it's the same for all of us we can trust that God is at work in us even if what he's doing at any given moment isn't for us. It doesn't have to be. In fact, a lot of times it's a lot better when it isn't. God is doing things that we could never imagine, things that we could never come up with on our own. He is crafting this story of redemption This incredible, eternal love story built on a never-ending covenant. 
And when did he accomplish all this? While you were sleeping. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you that you are at work in our lives in ways that we don't even know about. Unaware that you are working an eternal work. God, I pray that you help us to trust you. I pray that you would help us to lay down every sin at your feet. I pray that you would help us to be humble, that we'd not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. God, I pray that if there is any unrepentant sin, Lord, that it would be brought before your feet today. That if there's anyone under the sound of my voice who has never surrendered to the truth of the gospel, God, I pray that today you would call them to yourself. God, if there are things being hidden in the shadows, I pray that you would bring them into the light. God, I pray that you would wrap every one of us in that love story, that you would call us deeper, that you would remind us that our commitment to you, our covenant with you is built on you, not about being good enough or earning our way or doing all the rituals ourselves. It's on your sacrifice. So Lord, let us lay our entire lives at the foot of the cross, trusting in your sacrifice for every good thing. Call us to yourself, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you will stand, uh, we'll close together in worship.